0: Hi, everyone. Thank you all for joining. Today, we have the great honor and privilege of having Dr. Wade Eames with us. Dr. Wade Eames is a thoracic medical oncologist and translational lung cancer researcher at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. His research focuses on lung cancer clinical trials, as well as discovering and validating novel blood biomarkers that can be used to better identify and monitor lung cancer patients. Dr. Eames, thank you so much for your time and your willingness to be here with us.
1: Absolutely. Thanks for having me.
0: Wonderful. So to introduce myself and my team, my name is Pernico Central, and with me I have Anish Kugilam and Drake Long, and we are part of the American Lung Cancer Screening Initiative. And for those who might not um, be familiar with the organization, um, ALSI is a 501c3 nonprofit that works to raise awareness for lung cancer lung cancer screening. We're a team of over 200 students and doctors located across the United States. And we do the work that we do because lung cancer is the deadliest cancer in the world, causing more deaths than breast, prostate and colon cancers combined. Lung cancer causes about 380 deaths per day in the US alone. Lung cancer is very fatal because currently many patients are being diagnosed at a late stage when the cancer has grown and spread to other parts of the body. Lung cancer screening is an effective imaging technique that can be used to screen for lung cancer and has been shown to catch lung cancers early. However, less than 6% of people at high risk for lung cancer are currently getting screened. The screening rate for lung cancer is much lower than the screening rates for breast, cervical, and colon cancers, which are about 70%. We believe that educating people about lung cancer and lung cancer screening is one of the most important and effective ways to increase the lung cancer screening rate for populations that would benefit from lung cancer screening. So far, we've given over 250 presentations on lung cancer, lung cancer screening to universities, hospitals, medical schools, and organizations around the U.S., as well as India, Canada, Brazil, and Mexico, reaching over 10,000 people. Over the last year, we worked with over 335 mayors from every single U.S. state to issue proclamations recognizing November as National Lung Cancer Awareness Month. We've also had the opportunity to work with several leaders at the state level, including multiple mayors, Arizona State Senator Leo Alston, who's a lung cancer survivor, Pennsylvania Governor Tom Wolfe, and Lieutenant Governor of Colorado, Diane Cumavera, to issue public service announcements emphasizing the importance of lung cancer screening. In addition to our education, outreach, and advocacy efforts, we recently started a podcast series to share the personal side of lung cancer and provide a platform for lung cancer survivors and advocates to share their stories. Elsie also worked with U.S. Congress members and Senators to draft and advocate for the first-ever House and Senate resolutions recognizing the importance of the early detection of lung cancer through screening. In December 2022, the U.S. Senate passed a bipartisan resolution for the third year in a row recognizing November 2022 as National Lung Cancer Awareness Month and recognizing expressing support for the early detection and treatment of lung cancer. Senate Resolution 863 expands on previous resolutions by emphasizing the need for efforts to increase awareness of screening among veterans women and racial minorities. ALSI also actively worked with Representative Brennan Boyle and Senator Tina Smith to draft and advocate for Catherine's Law for Lung Cancer Early Detection and Survival Act of 2021. Lastly, we want to end by talking a little bit about lung cancer screening. Lung cancer screening is done using a low-dose tomography scan. The scan uses low radiation doses, is pain-free, and takes less than five minutes to complete. The United States Permanent Services Task Force, also known as the USPSTF, sets guidelines for who should be screened for lung cancer. Right now they recommend that people between the ages of 50 and 80 who have a 20-pack year smoking history or more and who are currently smoking or quit within the past 15 years get annual low-dose ct scans one pack year is defined as smoking on average one pack a day for one year and therefore 20 pack years can be met by smoking one pack a day for 10 for 20 years or smoking two packs a day for 10 years for example if you know anyone who might be eligible for lung cancer screening based on the criteria list on the previous slide Please encourage them to take your Lung Cancer Screening Eligibility Survey so they can learn more um, about whether they're eligible, and also the opportunity to connect with our team to guide them through the screening process. And finally, we wanna highlight that there are other risk factors for lung cancer in addition to smoking, such as exposure to asbestos, a family history of lung cancer, COPD, and previous radiation therapy to the lung. It is important that we recognize these additional risk factors because a large number of people in the United States who have never smoked still get lung cancer. So thank you all for taking the time to listen to that some information about lung cancer screening and that quick introduction without further ado we can jump right into the podcast we have a few questions prepared for dr imes but we also have a q a session at the end where you all can submit any questions you have for dr imes so first off dr imes can you please introduce yourself and share your background
1: yes i'm wade imes and i practice thoracic medical oncology at vanderbilt um, so caring for patients with lung cancer Uh, And what I do is the what we call the systemic therapy perspective. Uh, So I don't uh, do surgery or radiation, although those are often part of the treatment for patients with lung cancer. Uh, I uh, manage the administration for all systemic therapies, so chemotherapy. Uh, Now we have multiple oncogene-directed oral therapies for patients with lung cancer, uh, and immune therapy for those individuals. Uh, My background: I've trained at Vanderbilt and Northwestern. Western and first got interested in lung cancer care about a decade ago during residency at Vanderbilt, uh, mainly through strong mentorship. Uh, and uh, I thought it was very uh, uh, inspirational lung cancer research, both in lung cancer screening uh, and of course, all the way through to clinical trials with patients with advanced lung cancer. Uh, and I'm sure as you'll find throughout your careers, uh, strong mentorship and guidance is often the, a, a heavy force in guiding you in your career.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much. Could you talk a little bit about your experience caring for lung cancer patients and treating thoracic malignancies?
1: Uh, It's difficult. Many patients with lung cancer, and in my clinic specifically, a majority are diagnosed with stage 4 disease, Uh, so it's incurable at the time that we're meeting uh, and uh, trying to find treatments that can provide durable benefit for those patients. While there have been advances in the therapies, uh, specifically in oncogene-directed oral therapies and immune therapy advances for patients with stage 4 disease, it's still uh, the case that the earlier stage a patient is when they're diagnosed, uh, the better chance for cure. Uh, So uh, I also care for patients with typically stage two or three uh, lung cancer, uh, when they need a systemic therapy such as chemotherapy administered in conjunction with either surgery or radiation uh, for an attempt at cure. Uh, But certainly from my perspective in the clinic, uh, the earlier stage we can diagnose patients with lung cancer, the better the outcomes.
2: How would you say the uh, field of thoracic oncology has changed
1: in the past 10 or so years? I would say there's three big developments uh, in thoracic oncology uh, oncology over the last 10 years. Uh, Number one, first and foremost, clear proof of survival benefit with lung cancer screening. Um, So I think it was about 2013 that the USPSTF first uh, included lung cancer screening in their recommendations. And that was based on large randomized uh, clinical trial data that we participated in at Vanderbilt as well, uh, proving that we save lives from lung cancer through lung cancer screening. So that's been number one. Uh, number two has been uh, increase in number of oncogenes uh, that we have oral therapies for. Uh, so it goes back to the fundamental uh, cancer biology. Uh, cancer genes are... Uh, can be broken down pretty dichotomous into uh, oncogenes. So a mutation uh, results in constitutive activation, uh, cell signaling and uncontrolled cell growth or tumor suppressor gene loss. Um, uh, Tumor suppressor gene losses are much more difficult to target therapeutically. Um, You've essentially uh, inserted some error in the normal apoptotic process. Um, So, but in the last 10 years, we've had the approval of up to seven different oncogene specific therapies for patients with lung cancer. uh, And those have made a big difference for those cohorts of patients. Um, The issue is it's still a minority of patients who are eligible for those therapies. Uh, And the third development over the last 10 years has really been the successful deployment of immune therapy uh, or treatments that use the patient's immune system to control cancer. Uh, And still a a subgroup of patients uh, have years-long lung cancer control uh, through immune therapy. Uh, But uh, what we need to find uh, and achieve as a field is, first and foremost, better uptake of lung cancer screening. uh, And we need to refine the oncogene-directed therapies we have and immune therapies that we have so that more patients benefit. Could you please um, talk about or expand on some of the clinical trials
3: you were helping um, conduct
1: So the clinical trials uh, run across all stages uh, and um, they generally involve the interweaving of the concepts that I just mentioned. So uh, in the surgically resectable setting, so for patients with stage two or, or surgically resectable stage three lung cancer, uh, we're looking at clinical trials that use new forms of immune therapy before surgery um, to try to involve the immune system in cancer control uh, prior to surgery. Uh, in the stage three setting for patients with uh, treated with a combination of chemotherapy and radiation, uh, which is uh, a common treatment strategy. And unfortunately, most patients have cancer recurrence. We're also evaluating new immune therapy strategies um, to try to improve cure rates beyond. At best, it's it's about 40% uh, percent cure rate in that setting. Uh, and we really need to do better. Uh, and that's where we're seeking to deploy new immune therapy drugs. And then in patients with advanced lung cancer, it does, uh, Pretty much boil down to new immune therapies that we evaluate, uh, or new targeted therapies uh, to try to target uh, oncogenes that we haven't successfully inhibited yet, uh, and that we're evaluating actively in clinical trials.
0: Thank you so much. I think it's the work that you're doing is just so important because, as you mentioned, there are some cancers are surgically resectable and. And, and resection um, is oftentimes the most effective treatment option, but potentially combining resection and certain surgery with other other treatment options might be potentially more effective. As well as for especially for cancers um, that are not resectable, um, investigating you know the best combination of drugs and and that best combination will, is likely not going to be the same for for all patients. So figuring out you know how do we determine what that best combination is. So um, thank you for, for the work that you're doing and just. Um, very exciting and interesting to hear and so um you do a lot of work with blood biomarkers and so could you explain just um for people who might not know what are blood biomarkers and what are some examples of blood biomarkers
1: yeah it pretty much boils down to cell biology that you can detect in the bloodstream. So uh, everything from uh, about 150 base pair fragments of uh, tumor DNA, we call that circulating tumor DNA. Um, There's uh, emerging technologies that allow us to detect tumor associated RNA as well. Uh, And uh, for the longest period of time, we've been able to detect potentially tumor associated proteins. Um, So it's really tracking fragments of DNA, RNA, or protein uh, from the tumor in a patient's bloodstream. Uh, The one that's the most in the clinic already is evaluation of circulating tumor DNA fragments. Um, We're already able to use that to identify potentially targetable oncogenic mutations and institute therapies based on just that blood test. Um, But a lot of my research is evaluating ways that we can use that blood monitoring to do more than just identify a single mutation for treatment uh, such as monitor response to treatment, uh, monitor disease recurrence um, so that we're not completely reliant uh, on CAT scans, MRIs, and PET scans, which are good and certainly in the lung cancer screening context have been proven to save lives, uh, but they're imperfect. And I think that uh, the more data that we're able to collect, particularly with circulating biomarkers, and add to what we're getting with the scans, um, we'll be able to further improve care. Could you describe the process of how you validate
2: the biomarkers?
1: Yes. So... Uh, Validation of any blood biomarker requires uh, a cohort of patients uh, and patient samples, and usually they're evaluated in a specific clinical context. So uh, to um, juxtapose a couple contexts, um, one, we have a a large biobank of uh, blood specimens from patients undergoing lung cancer screening at Vanderbilt. Uh, And so we could say, if we want to evaluate this protein or circulating DNA biomarker uh, to see if we can improve our lung cancer detection rates. We would take a cohort of patients who have all provided informed consent for this type of research evaluation for their biospecimens uh, and see if using new technology can improve the accuracy of the CT scan results we're getting for lung cancer screening. Um, A different example and one I work more in is in the advanced lung cancer setting. say after treatment with chemotherapy and radiation. uh, These are a couple of analyses that that we're working on now. Um, What does it look like if we take blood samples from patients uh, after their chemo and radiation treatment? Can we detect cancer in the bloodstream uh, before we see it come back on CT scans? Um, So validation is typically specific to a clinical context and technology. Um, And it's a highly competitive space. That's another uh, Intriguing uh, component of it. There's a lot of startup companies and and capital involved in uh, making the best new uh, uh, in patients who've never been detected with uh, with cancer, uh, and in patients who already have a diagnosis of cancer.
3: And just to follow up that previous question, um, what in your opinion is the optimal therapeutic strategy for predicting these biomarkers?
1: So um, the. If that, that The answer to that is, is loaded and it depends on the clinical context that somebody uh, somebody experiences mostly. So um, in my opinion, I, I think that uh, the biggest opportunity is in early detection of recurrence, uh, but perhaps in a primary care clinic uh, or, and uh, early detection of cancer of any type uh, would be the answer. So I think uh, to me, those are the two big uh, potential highest marginal benefit deployments of the technology, Um, one of the potential downsides of any biomarker for cancer, particularly in the early detection setting, is um, it would be, as you'd imagine, very anxiety-provoking if you had a blood test that said you had cancer and we didn't know where it was or what to do about it, Um, so that needs to be thoroughly refined uh, versus, I think it's a different situation if you already have a diagnosis of cancer, you know your under surveillance for that, uh, and we identify it in the bloodstream, uh, and ideally can uh, deploy an effective treatment for you at that point. Uh, We know for cancer treatments as a whole, and this uh, is definitely reflected in the improved prognosis by stage, uh, most of our cancer treatments are more effective the less tumor burden or the less cancer there is in a person's body. Um, So uh, it would make sense biologically uh, if early detection of recurrence and early deployment of effective treatments could uh, has a big potential for improved outcomes.
0: So you talked a little bit about how, um, how we can use these biomarkers to refine the selection of high-risk patients for lung cancer screening. Could you talk a little bit about how biomarkers can be used to aid in potentially treatment and prognosis as well?
1: Uh, so during uh, treatment and at the time of diagnosis, um, It's very important for patients, even uh, with stage four disease, to know more specifics about their prognosis. And uh, especially in the stage four setting, it's always a balance of quality and quantity of life. Uh, And so one of the components of guiding a patient on that cancer journey uh, is being able to provide them with at least a range of expectations of prognosis. And some of these biomarkers have been associated with, particularly worse prognosis. And so uh, being able to provide patients that information uh, is very important for their planning purposes and expectations during treatment, um, how much treatment side effect they're willing to endure uh, based on results that can be very telling as far as their prognosis. It's been shown that repeating, particularly circulating tumor DNA assessments during treatment uh, can also provide insight into whether that particular treatment is effective. Uh, And so um, that's another way that we can provide more information to patients uh, on their cancer journey about the effectiveness of, of treatments they're undergoing. What hasn't been proven is that uh, when we see that treatment's not working with these biomarkers, uh, we haven't definitively shown that if we change treatment early, uh, that definitely improves outcomes. Uh, Some skeptics note that it could just indicate that person has a very aggressive cancer that's not gonna respond to any treatment. Um, I think that it's somewhere in between. Some some patients, uh, that is the case, but I think there may be patients who could still have benefit.
2: Oh, you'd mentioned earlier a negative aspect of the biomarkers um, as far as patient anxiety because they don't necessarily know uh, some of the details. So, if you could expand a little upon that, what are some other pros and cons related to biomarkers?
1: Absolutely. So, one of the big ones that is important uh, in, in all the healthcare system, and uh, there are specific ways that this uh, is, in a way, protected currently. Cost is is an important uh, potential con. We don't want patients having to pay uh, a lot uh, out of pocket for these additional tests. Uh, What we experience in the clinic a lot, of course, they're often billed to insurance, but a lot of these testing companies uh, are not Then going to the patient uh, for additional compensation for the tests. Uh, Because it's a competitive space and they want the data, there's a lot of competition out there. Um, And so so they want as much information as they can get and are very lenient uh, on cost for the time being, although that uh, could emerge down the line as as a bigger issue. Um, Uncertainty over the next steps with the result is a big potential limitation. uh, And the reality is uh, we need big, clinical trials uh, done evaluating the use of these biomarkers to guide treatment uh, in order to really know, uh, it, does it improve outcomes to do these tests, uh, or is it additional information without clear guidance on next steps that would just result in anxiety? Um, the, the, case, the best case scenario for the pros, I already stated, is, is hopefully we, we can improve outcomes uh, by uh, making uh, quicker treatment decisions uh, and, and uh, I would argue, a more informed formed fashion, uh, but that's yet to be more definitively proven in bigger studies.
3: I think you bring a really important uh, point about potential emotional discre- distress it can cause. Um, and just to talk about, we've talked about genetic marker testing on uh, some of our other podcasts, um, much related to your research on blood biomarkers. So I think you talked a little bit about the pros and cons of blood biomarker testing, but can you talk about the pros and cons of genetic genetic marker testing and you know the slim- similarities and differences uh, between them both?
1: Absolutely. So. Um... When we're looking at circulating tumor DNA, uh, and and particularly tumor DNA next-generation sequencing, which is uh, becoming the the prevailing approach uh, across the country in in tumor sequencing and genetic testing, uh, sometimes we do uh, pick up inherited or germline cancer mutations, uh, and that presents uh, a number of complex issues uh, along the lines of uh, what a patient would do with that information, uh, the implications for the patient's family, uh, cancer screening for additional family members. uh, And so uh, when patients have potential uh, findings uh, of inherited mutations, our typical approach in the clinic uh, is to uh, refer them to dedicated genetic counselors. Um, and the reality of catching those uh, genetic or inherited predisposition genes uh, on testing for uh, specific therapies, for example, uh, and it's in a way accidental, um, our genetic counselors and geneticists are always reminding us that it's not a dedicated mind test and they would have to get separate testing to confirm that Um, so we approach it by heavily relying on genetic counseling and our geneticists to then meet with a patient and talk through um, do they want dedicated testing to confirm with certainty um, that this mutation could have been passed to children uh, or that siblings may also harbor this mutation Uh, and so um, that's a a really complicated domain that i think it's it's ideal to have specialists And, and i do think uh Uh, across the country in in community centers as well. I think the genetic counseling resources uh, are fairly built out. The one uh, most folks are familiar with is BRCA, or the breast cancer gene. Uh, But there's a whole host of other cancer risk genes uh, that we learn more about every year uh, and that we identify on these tests.
0: Thank you for sharing your um, insights into that, because we receive a lot of questions, especially from patients who are recently diagnosed about whether you know, should they undergo genetic testing? Um, should they undergo biomarker testing? Should they undergo both? And I think it's a, there's a lot of lot to think about. It's it might seem easy to be like just to just do both because just to cover your bases. But um, you know, it's once you do have that information, it's it's harder to think about what do I do with so much information and it, it, is it really going to be impacting my treatment decisions or um, or questions like that. So I think you bring up some really important points there. And so we um, we're really interested to know where do you think the future of biomarker testing um, will go in in the next couple of years? So like new innovations or techniques, anything along those lines. So
1: yeah, so um, the key needs and uh, domains where technology is being uh, developed is uh, in the early cancer detection setting, um, there's technology evolving to Uh, locate cancer to a specific organ. Uh, So instead of just uh, you have cancer, you don't have cancer blood test, uh, better refinement of you have pancreatic cancer or you have lung cancer or colon cancer. There is technology that's being developed to to make that possible. Uh, And uh, currently there's technology that's being better developed or developed to better identify what we call microscopic recurrent disease. Um, Currently, our our technology for blood biomarkers uh, can be summarized in that it it tends to be accurate and representative of uh, a cancer when we detect it, uh, but it's uh, uh, not perfect in detection. Uh, uh, That's a jargon term we call sensitivity uh, or the ability to detect detect cancer in the blood when it's present in the body. So uh, we need better localization of cancer type, and that's in development with new technologies and better sensitivity or ability to capture the cancer biomarkers, uh, ideally at all times in the blood, but no test is ever perfect. Um, So, uh, but improvements uh, in sensitivity are on the way as well.
2: Currently the lung cancer screening guidelines don't include uh, never smokers. So how can we identify never smokers that may be at high risk for lung cancer and should be screened?
1: Oh, really good question. Um, The short answer is it it falls back on the secondary risk factors that you mentioned. Um, I think those would be the first to go uh, to uh, folks with significant secondhand exposure. Um, prior radiation to the lung is one that I've seen a, a number of individuals who had uh, often a lymphoma as a young person and their is radiation at that point, develop lung focusing on uh, what additional risk factors uh, are present in an individual um, to, would be the next step uh, to include in lung cancer screening.
0: I think that's a really great point, Dr. Um, Ames. Because uh, right now, uh, we're we're a lot of studies have shown that there are other risk factors for lung cancer, like exposure to secondhand smoke and family history of lung cancer. But these other risk factors are more difficult to quantify. Unlike uh, unlike maybe someone's smoking history, their exposure to secondhand smoke is is more difficult to quantify. And so I think that's one of the major reasons why our the lung cancer screening guidelines haven't changed. Um, in terms of like the criteria from the 2013 US tip guidelines to the 2021 guidelines. And so um, we, a lot of studies are now looking at the use of lung cancer risk prediction models. So could you talk about where you, you see the role of blood biomarkers um, or, or just biomarkers in general playing um, with lung cancer risk prediction models?
1: Yeah, so that's the centerpiece of a lot of research at Vanderbilt uh, specifically. So um, blood biomarkers have the potential to uh, inform uh, lung cancer screening approaches uh, uh, in identification of patients to undergo lung cancer screening, as well as to identify patients who need an invasive procedure like a surgery uh, or a biopsy, which which have risk in themselves once we identify them them on lung cancer screening. Uh, And one of the big critiques of lung cancer screening that the data has obviously shown that uh, that lung cancer screening saves lives and our update uh, needs to dramatically improve. Uh, But sometimes folks uh, cite false positives or unnecessary procedures that can arise through lung cancer screening if you have a finding that's ultimately uh, non-cancerous and there's additional risk and cost of additional procedures. So a lot of what Vanderbilt is working on is ways that we can use blood biomarkers to better decipher those results of lung cancer screening uh, and better refine the interpretation of those results with blood biomarkers. And then hopefully uh, people will be more broadly reassured uh, to make sure everybody's undergoing this testing because we have additional layers of biomarkers and strategies to make sure that we're not subjecting patients to under unnecessary biopsies or surgeries. Um, And so I think it's a really important uh, domain uh, to continue to advance the use of biomarkers and at Vanderbilt it's both protein and uh, tumor DNA biomarkers um, that we're looking into to better refine the results of lung cancer screening.
3: And just a follow-up question to that, um, do you see a role for deep learning or machine learning in biomarker detection?
1: Absolutely, yes. Um, So I think that um, uh, deep learning, or at least the way I interpreted it, uh, is um, the ability for technology or algorithm deployment that we would have a difficult time articulating that can be refined with additional data sets uh, to improve upon itself. Uh, I think that has uh, significant potential in in the biomarker space, uh, particularly in the context of localizing cancers, increasing sensitivity. Um, There are a lot of uh, signals, so to speak, or pieces of data we get from these biomarker results that we're not sure how to interpret. Uh, And I think over time with additional data, Um, Something like deep learning can be uh, an ideal way to refine uh, our our models and improve these tests. Um, Ultimately, what's often the limiting factor is uh, getting the samples, having good uh, clinical annotation uh, of those results uh, so that we have Um, basically good data in um, something you know say data in the quality of the data in uh, significantly impacts the quality of the data out so you've got to have uh, really good data in
0: wonderful thank you so much dr Eames. um those are those are those are all the questions that we had prepared for the podcast but we do have some questions that were submitted from the public beforehand and so we'll move we'll transition into those questions um shortly but thank you so much for for talking about your work and um, especially on biomarkers and clinical trials. I think there's a lot of work to, to still be done, but it's a very exciting um, frontier. So
1: um,
0: thank you. And, and we'll move on to the submitted questions. Our first question is, um, why did you choose thoracic oncology?
1: Yeah, key question, uh, mentorship. So so here at Vanderbilt in thoracic medical oncology, uh, my two early mentors uh, were Christine Lovely and Leora Horn uh, in both the clinical trials and translational lung cancer research uh, domains. uh, And uh, they were working on what I thought were compelling clinical trials, uh, the use of immune therapy more broadly in patients with lung cancer uh, and looking at circulating tumor DNA uh, to detect cancer recurrence. And patients with lung cancer, uh, very motivated and engaged individuals, and highly successful individuals. Um, And so it was working with them and uh, the opportunity, then uh, through those collaborations, to uh, first be involved in projects and then get to lead projects um, that really got me motivated to to continue to dedicate my career to, to this work.
2: What do you consider to be the most challenging aspect of your work?
1: Certainly the dying process uh, and um, caring for humans in the dying process is a never ending challenge and I think that I do have a lot of, I I get a lot of career fulfillment from it, uh, but it's not, uh, and many times, it's not a very happy uh, enterprise. And many times in any career, there's a tension between happiness and fulfillment. Uh, And so I think that... um, uh, I, I certainly feel the impact and, and try to be mindful of the impact on uh, uh, on my work-life balance and, and behavior out of work uh, for those experiences. Uh, but I think being around supportive peers and supportive patients and uh, clinic team, uh, I think that uh, we all have such a strong dedication to the mission, uh, and patients are generally very very appreciative, uh, and that helps keep me going. Uh, but still, at any time, uh, a, a patient. Dies and in lung cancer care, that's a lot. Um, it uh, it has some toll on you.
3: As someone that leads uh, most of their clinical trials, what factors should patients consider when deciding whether or not to participate in these clinical trials?
1: Really important question. Um, so. The decision to participate in a clinical trial is very individual for a patient. Um, so um, many the, all clinical trials have a variety of criteria uh, for inclusion, um, some of which are unnecessary. And there's a lot of patient advocate groups uh, working with the National Cancer Institute uh, and industry to make sure that we allow many more patients on clinical trials than currently. Uh, but assuring you qualify as one. Uh, Understanding that many clinical trials um, uh, have primarily a contribution to science and learning uh, and uh, uh, may not be beneficial to the individual participating, uh, especially with earlier stage clinical trials, like phase one clinical trials, uh, is a really important part that I, when my patients are participating in phase one clinical trials, uh, make sure that they're aware uh, of the the potential here. Um, And uh, then, the phase of clinical trials. So uh, there's uh, phase one, two, and three uh, are the general stages that uh, new drugs progress through evaluation. Uh, Phase one is in the first stage um, where these are very early uh, drugs in development, uh, and uh, many of them are not going to succeed, but we need to evaluate these for the betterment of cancer care and uh, understanding of how to refine future therapies as well. And of course, we are hoping on the individual level that the drug we're testing is a blockbuster, but knowing the reality uh, of the odds I think is important. Um, And then uh, once a drug proves potential, uh, it first proves safety in phase one, uh, then we're evaluating more the effect on the cancer in phase two clinical trials, uh, usually without a placebo or a control arm. Uh, In a phase three clinical trial, um, those are big clinical trials where a drug is uh, comparing itself to current standard of care typically. And the drug is essentially uh, going up to be ready for FDA approval. Um, And patients need to understand whether there's a randomization component. Um, So whether they'll receive an investigational new drug for sure, uh, or there's just a chance that they'll receive uh, the investigational new drug. um, And uh, understanding of that and being willing to uh, um, accept and and understand that uh, number one, anything from the odds of of the drug being successful, through to randomization and the odds that, as an individual, they'll receive the investigational drug uh, are important points uh, for clinical trial participation. Another significant barrier that, as a system, uh, we need significant improvement on is simply the geographic location that a lot of the clinical trials are available. Um, many of them, you have to be at a large medical center to participate, uh, and they're just not available uh, in the community very often. So. Um, trying to minimize travel that's required for patients to participate in clinical trials uh, is a huge uh, area for improvement for our whole system.
0: Those, those are really ex- excellent points, Dr. James. So thank you for talking about that. And I, just one one other thing that um, I was thinking about as you were talking is just uh, increased uh, rep- representation in our clinical trials because um, the NLST and Nelson trials were huge clinical trials that really paved the way for um, especially the NOSD paved the way for the USPSTF guidelines, but there are very few, um, uh, very few, for example, African American patients in the trial, and and also fewer um, female patients compared to male patients. And so, I, I think uh, just going on going off of what you had said, just also um, ensuring that we're able to um, reach uh, and have an equal representation of all. Race and ethnicities, I think, it, is also very helpful. And um, we have a question that's very timely, but um, so we're just slowly, you I know, mean, things are just slowly becoming uh, slightly more normal following our COVID 19. And so this question asks how did COVID 19 affect, um, you know, either how you treated lung cancer patients, or I, I think it's just asking in general, just how did it affect um, the field as a whole?
1: It was definitely um, uh, an impediment to ideal care. The, our clinical trial office uh, shut down for a period of time at Vanderbilt. Um, We're not able to uh, proceed with our clinical trial research uh, for a matter of months at Vanderbilt. And I know uh, some institutions, I think, uh, approached a year or so uh, with research uh, in clinical trials on hold. Uh, And then the patient care delivery uh, was more virtual and it's uh, more difficult to get uh, an accurate assessment in in a virtual, visit so there was more uh, disconnects in patient care, uh, and it's been observed with uh, studies uh, retrospectively that patients didn't participate in lung cancer screening as much uh, during the especially first parts of the pandemic. uh, And there was uh, measurable uh, increases in later stage lung cancer diagnoses as a result. So uh, in many ways, um, it was a setback, but I do think uh, as the system uh, were uh, resumed and were uh, kicking uh, we're, we're already back up uh, and running, but um, certainly a setback. So unfortunately,
2: there is a stigma of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. So being a medical professional yourself, how can you and others within the field help in almost chipping away at that stigma and getting real facts out to the public?
1: I think that's a very important question. And... Uh, My perspective is that I think we need to make sure all patients uh, are getting lung cancer screening, acknowledge that patients with no smoking history uh, can also get lung cancer. Uh, But the other reality, and one way that I talk about it with my patients is, um, yes, smoking is often the the biggest risk factor for getting lung cancer, but not everybody who smokes gets lung cancer. So there are clearly additional factors on the individual level that predispose them uh, to get cancer. Uh, and so, um, uh, everything's an interaction of, uh, an individual's genetic, uh, 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 makeup and their environmental factors. Uh, And so um, I think that uh, making sure that there's an understanding that uh, this can happen in never smokers, that we have uh, lung cancer screening recommendations that have been proven to save lives. Um, Smoking cessation also improves survival in patients with a lung cancer diagnosis. Reiterating that uh, with my patients is a critical aspect. Uh, And that we have more and more effective therapies uh, for patients uh, once they're diagnosed that's that's something that we still face to a degree. Um, a little bit of nihilism around a lung cancer diagnosis that, well, we don't have any effective therapies, but that's not true anymore. Uh, we have many effective therapies. Um, and I think the reality is there, are a lot of medical conditions associated with high-risk behaviors, uh, with some degree of stigma around them, uh, and so uh, I think that um, lung cancer is not unique, but we can also learn from other uh, domains uh, in medicine that face similar things.
0: Absolutely, I think um, I, I think we made a lot of progress in terms of like breast cancer and cervical cancer. These these uh, really common and well well known cancers um, and. And we're, we're making some progress um, towards that uh, with lung cancer as well. But in terms of education and advocacy, just raising awareness, I think there's a lot that we can learn from from other conditions and especially other cancers. And one thing that you had mentioned is just um, how smoking cessation and lung cancer screening should, should go really hand in hand. And I think that's so important because, um, you know, patients might... Uh, get screened for lung cancer. And regardless of of that result, I think if if they have had a smoking history and if they're wanting to quit smoking, then um, just figuring out how best we can really pair those efforts together so that they're able to receive um, uh, just support or resources to a smoking cessation um, center near them uh, can go a long way. So definitely agree with all of that. And so uh, we're approaching our last question. And so we start our podcast with asking how the field of lung cancer has changed in the past 10 years. So to go full circle um, with the current trajectory, what do you expect um, lung cancer treatment and lung cancer screening will look like in in the future?
1: Yeah, so um, I think that the... Um, the integration of blood biomarkers is, is the biggest uh, potential um, paradigm shift. Um, there's intermittent talk in the field of whether blood tests would replace biopsy. Um, I'm not convinced that that will be the case, although I've been in some interesting debates um, that uh, you know, five years, 10 years from now, um, is technology gonna be advanced enough uh, for that to be the case? Um, but I, I think, yeah, the, the use of blood tests and the, sophistication of our treatments? Um, uh, Are we going to be able to deploy uh, treatments Refined to the individual level, uh, much more so than we currently are able now. Um, there's fascinating research looking at whether we could develop immune cells uh, specific to a patient's tumor antigens, uh, manufacture those immune cells, and reinfuse those in an individual patient so that um, it's not a, a broad strategy that's only effective for. At most 25% of patients, but it's literally uh, an individualized immune therapy treatment. Um, so I think those are the those are the big two uh, items on the horizon. Um, to what extent uh, is blood testing going to change every facet of the cancer paradigm, and to what extent uh, are individualized uh, to the patient level uh, therapeutic approaches going to be realized? And I hope it, it's it's significant um, within the next five to ten years, um, but it'll be very interesting year to year uh, along the way.
3: Um, thank you for
1: asking, that, um,
3: answering that, um, but that was our last question we received from our public, so that concludes our podcast. Um, so just to re- reiterate again, um, thank you so much, Dr. Eams, for your willingness to share your wealth of knowledge and perspective on many of the pressing issues in the lung cancer world alongside blood ma- biomarkers and immunotherapy. Uh, we appreciate all the work and research that you're currently doing. Um, and thank you to everyone for joining our podcast. Uh, please keep an eye out for our upcoming podcasts and events, which will be listed on our website, www.lc.org. Um, Next week, we have podcasts from Dr. Irin Mehta, Dr. Madhuri Rao, Dr. Estamari Rodriguez, and lung cancer survivor, Ashley Rickles. Zoom links and information on these individuals can be found on our website under calendar events and from our Instagram bio. Thank you, Dr. Yams again, and have a great day, everyone.
1: Thank you. Great questions. Good discussion.
0: Thank you so much, Dr. James.